Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for, for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. You may all be seated and let's pray together as we come to God's holy word today. Our God and our Father, we give you praise as the most high God, as the everlasting one, as the one whose ways are higher than our ways and unsearchable and inscrutable. And Father, we confess, especially as you have raised us from our sinfulness and as we are finite, Father, we confess that we could never understand the truths about you apart from your revealing them to us. And so we praise you for the revelation that you have given us of yourself and of your power and of your wisdom and of your ways in the scriptures. And so we pray as these are the God-breathed words, Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us to help us to understand, to illuminate our minds and especially our hearts, God, that your word would continue the work that it was intended to achieve and accomplish in our lives transforming us by the renewing of our minds. Father, change us through your word this morning. Show us something about ourselves today that we needed to know as we came into your presence that needs to change. And help us repent and help us grow. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been working through the book of Acts together for the past many months, and as we've been doing that and been focused on the life and the ministry of Paul, especially from Acts chapter 13 on, as he began, remember, to make these missionary journeys throughout the Roman Empire, bringing the gospel to Jewish synagogues and also to eventually predominantly Gentile territories and cities. It's important to remember that it was along those journeys, of course, that Paul wrote letters to various churches that had been established in all of those places that he had been traveling, and that we have 13 of those letters still that he wrote here in our New Testaments, and sometimes it's important to go back and say, well, he wasn't just traveling, but what did he write to those churches, and what is the benefit for our souls? And that's what I wanted to do today. He, 
He wrote the letter to the churches in the province of Galatia first, around 47 A.D., the book of Galatians, during his first missionary journey. And then he wrote the, the book of 2 Timothy last, around 64 A.D., during his second imprisonment in Rome, very, very near to the end of his earthly life. And in between those two books, he wrote 11 more letters that we have in our Bibles to various churches and people, which, which of course were, were breathed out by God the Holy Spirit, as Paul himself says in 1 Timothy. And so they all contain God's Word. All these, all these letters that he wrote are not just personal correspondences. They are God's Word, not just to those churches and those Christians who lived in those places at those times, but for all Christians throughout the history of his church entirely. So this, this past week, which was not, I'll, I'll confess to you, an easy week for me. It was a rough week, earthly speaking. Not a bad week, but a rough week. I've learned that. I hope you're learning that too and have learned that in your own lives. That when it feels like a bad time, it's not a bad time objectively because we don't measure reality by how we feel. And God works all things together for our good. And all things means... All things, even the rough things and the things that feel bad. And so, even though it feels like a bad week, it must be a good week, right? Because God's using it. Well, this past week, which didn't feel good but was, my mind and my heart have been focused on this little portion of God's Word in the second chapter of the second letter that we have in our Bibles. I think he wrote at least three, maybe four letters to the church in Corinth. We've got two of them as the inspired Word of God in our Scriptures. And I've been focused on these few verses in the second chapter of the second letter that we have to the church of Corinth, because God's been using this passage to bring great encouragement to me when circumstances and, and the, the stuff of life in this broken world has been tough and frustrating and discouraging. And there's all kinds of places like this, right, in God's Word. All kinds of places to run to in tough, frustrating, discouraging, painful times. You've all got your places that you go and find shelter and find refuge and praise God who gives us those places in His living and active Word to run to and to fill us with strength and encouragement and perspective. And that's what I want to share with you all today from the words of 2 Corinthians. And I hope that God's going to use these verses to to encourage you just as he's been encouraging me. So, uh, Paul first came in his missionary journeys to the city of Corinth. You might remember from our earlier studies in the book of Acts, Paul first came to the city of Corinth during his second missionary journey, around the year 51 AD. You remember that Corinth is a a port city down in southern Greece. It's actually on a little isthmus of land where there are two ports because there are two bodies of water that border the city. And Paul had been traveling through Asia to the east, modern-day Turkey. And you remember that as he was traveling, he was making plans to go up to Bithynia, but he was prevented by the Holy Spirit. And he wanted to make stops instead along the way. And God prevented him from stopping and drove him providentially all the way out west to Troas. And when he got to Troas, God gave Paul a vision of a man across the sea in Macedonia where he'd never been yet. And, and that man was pleading with Paul for help. And so Paul 
and his traveling companion set sail for Macedonia. They ended up in Philippi. You remember in Acts chapter 16, and, and that was the place where there was no Jewish synagogue, and so they, they did what was customary for the Jews to do when there was no synagogue. They went down by the river in order to worship, and they found a group of ladies there, remember, and they talked to them about the Scriptures and about the Messiah and about Jesus. And then through a series of circumstances, you remember that it was in Philippi that Paul and Silas, one of his companions, ended up in jail, and God providentially shook the doors open and shook the chains from their hands and feet, and they were able to preach the gospel to the jailer and his whole family, and they all came to faith in Jesus. And then from there, they traveled to Thessalonica and to Berea and to Athens. You remember Paul debating in Acts chapter 17 with the Greek philosophers in Athens at the Areopagus. And then from there, they went down to Corinth, Acts chapter 18. Remember, not so many chapters ago, but quite a few weeks ago, we talked about Paul in Corinth. Silas and Timothy joined him there after a few months, and he was living in Corinth, remember, with a couple who had, who had come from Rome after all the Jews had been expelled from Rome. They had come down to Corinth. They were named Aquila and Priscilla. They were tent makers. And Paul was living with them. And he spent about 18 months in Corinth, during which Acts 18 says he was occupied with the Word of God, preaching and teaching the Gospel and the message of Jesus Christ, crucified for our sins and raised for our justification. And the unbelieving Jews in Corinth didn't like it, so they launched this united attack against Paul and dragged him before the Roman tribunal to try to get him arrested, but the tribunal wanted nothing of it. And so by God's providence, Paul was not prosecuted for, for anything criminal. He was able to stay there in Corinth for many more days and, and then eventually returned to Antioch for a time before launching off again on his third missionary journey all throughout the regions that he had been to in Asia and Macedonia. And that eventually brought him back to Ephesus, Acts chapter 19, around the year 53 AD, and he stayed there for almost three years, remember? Because even though he faced a lot of opposition and persecution, at the same time there was a lot of faith, there was a lot of belief, there was a lot of fruit being born from his ministry there in Ephesus. And it was a really rich season of ministry for him, and it was during that season probably around the year 54-55 AD, in the city of Ephesus, that Paul wrote a letter to, the first letter to, the church back in Corinth that he had been to several years before and helped establish and plant several years before. So he's in Ephesus, the church is over in Corinth, and he's hearing from Titus, one of the Christians and disciples there in Corinth, that there's trouble in Corinth some doctrinal issues, some things that they were misunderstanding about the truth of God, and also some, some moral issues, some sin issues there in Corinth, things that needed to be confronted, dealt with. They needed to repent. Titus is telling this to Paul as Paul's in Ephesus now, and Paul's soul is troubled by this, so he writes a letter to them, 1 Corinthians. He sends it back from Ephesus with Titus in order to call them to repentance in Corinth and, and call them to live in growing holiness, just like we talked about last week. And so, Titus delivers this letter to the leaders of the church in Corinth while Paul 
remains in Ephesus in an age, of course, where there were no telephones to ring in the middle of the service or um, to deliver emails to you. There was no internet. There was no email. There was no Zoom so that Paul could log on and say, hey, did you get my letter right now? What did you think? And, And gauge their response, right? Paul's just a far distance from Corinth with no idea how they responded to his letter. Did they even get his letter? Did they read it? Did they take it to heart? When they read his words of rebuke and correction, were were they humbled in their hearts by that correction? Did it lead to repentance in their lives? Or maybe that, maybe not. Maybe the, maybe the Corinthians, when they got 1 Corinthians and Titus read it to them, maybe, maybe they chafed at Paul's admonitions and exhortations. Maybe they took his letter and wadded it up and threw it in the fire and said, forget this Paul. He's got nothing nice to say to us. How would Paul know? Well, he wouldn't know in any immediate way because Titus couldn't send an email to him or, or call him up and say, guess what? Here's how they took it. So Paul is anxious to know how his letter was received, and so he plans to go and visit Corinth twice, actually. On his way from Ephesus back up into Macedonia, he planned to go by way of Corinth and to stop there for a time and and to see how things were. And then he planned on on his return trip from Macedonia again to stop in Corinth and pay them another visit. He says that in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 16, that that was his plan, but then he changed his mind. And he decided instead of stopping in Corinth or even going by way of Corinth to travel straight to Macedonia from Ephesus without stopping in Corinth. Why? Why would he do that? If he was so eager to go to Corinth, if he was so eager and anxious to find out how they had received his letter and, and whether they were growing now, whether or not it had been well received, why did Paul change this plan and decide not to go? He tells them in this second letter that he wrote to them. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, look up at the end of chapter 1. He explains the reason why he didn't go in verse 23. He says, I call God to witness against me. I didn't go in order to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? You hear the mercy? You hear the grace in Paul's heart? I wrote as I did so that when I came I might not suffer pain from those of you who should have made me rejoice, for I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. See, mercy's the reason why Paul didn't go again to Corinth. Mercy, because he didn't want to discourage them. Because he knows he's not the Holy Spirit. Because he knows, look, I wrote this letter and I confronted your sin, which God calls me to do, but what I can't do is change your hearts. And I didn't want to try to take the Holy Spirit's role into my own hands. I wanted a letter to sit there and I didn't want to show up and discourage you. And I prayed and I prayed that God would do His work through my letter in your hearts and that it would cause me to rejoice to hear that that God had brought you to repentance. The outcome, he knew, was up to the Holy Spirit. 
He couldn't change their hearts. God could. Paul needed to trust God. Paul needed to pray and hope, and that's what he did. And so he headed for Macedonia without going by way of Corinth. He headed up through Troas instead. He hoped to meet up with Titus in Troas because he was hoping Titus would come from Corinth, meet him there, and give him a report of what was going on. But in God's providence, Titus couldn't make it to Troas, and so Paul was um, upset. Paul was... uh, his mind was, was not at rest, he says here in chapter 2, because he's still waiting to hear from Titus what's going on in Corinth. So plan B was, since Titus couldn't make it to Troas, plan B was for them to meet up in Macedonia later that year, which they did. And Paul says that when they met up, Titus did report to him about what was going on in Corinth after they got the first letter. And that report did cause Paul to rejoice. The Corinthians had not rejected his letter of 1 Corinthians. They weren't resentful of Paul or his rebukes. They had received his word well and there was repentance. He writes all about that here now in his second letter. 2 Corinthians, all the way over in chapter 7, he writes about that. When we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn. It was a really hard journey, fighting without and fear within. But even though we were struggling, even though we were wrestling, even though it was hard, God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, we weren't just happy to see him, We are happy to hear from him the comfort with which he was comforted by you, Corinthians, as he told us of your longing, your mourning over your sin, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still the more. They had received his word. They had turned from their sin. They were beginning to grow. They were growing, as we saw last week. But see, those words about this good report from Titus come all the way over in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Because the good report of the Corinthians' repentance and love for Paul wasn't the only thing that Titus had to report and fill Paul in on. He also told Paul that once again there was trouble in Corinth, but this time it was coming from the outside. A group of false teachers. They were calling themselves apostles of Jesus, but they weren't teaching the true gospel of salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Jesus. And not only were they preaching a false legalistic gospel, they were actively and deliberately and overtly trying to undermine Paul by discrediting him. They were trying to cause the Corinthian Christians who Paul loved desperately to lose confidence in Paul. They were tearing him down in the side of the church of Corinth. And Paul wasn't just personally offended by that. His greatest concern was, if they lose faith in me as an apostle of Jesus, they'll lose faith in the gospel. And that would be a disaster, and that's what he really cares about. Now, this kind of thing tended to happen a lot to Paul. He would go in, he would preach the gospel, then he would go somewhere else once people had faith and a church was established, and someone else would come in behind him and try to steal away all of these new converts and try to build a big following of their own. And very often they would try to do that by by claiming that 
that Paul's gospel was inadequate in some way, right? You can't just be saved by grace through faith alone. You've got to do something to earn it. So they'd try to add to the gospel. Salvation, they would say, equals grace plus something you've got to do in order to be saved. Good works, physical circumcision, we've seen it before. Dietary laws, we've seen it before in the book of Acts. They convened an entire council to deal with that kind of legalism in Acts chapter 15 and to condemn it. Well, it's the same thing here now. Titus comes up to Macedonia to meet Paul, lets him know there's, there's this group of legalistic false apostles and they're at it again. They're trying to steal the sheep. They're wolves in sheep's clothing trying to steal the sheep. And this time, they're not just discrediting the gospel, they're also trying directly to discredit Paul. They're mocking Paul. They're going, wait, Paul preached this gospel to you? That loser? What confidence could you ever possibly have in that guy? This is what they were doing. They made fun of him, they mocked him about his appearance. That, that short, squatty, hook-nosed little guy with the unibrow, Josephus tells us, that guy... You listen to him? They mocked his speaking ability, because Paul himself says, right, I, when I came, in 1 Corinthians, he says, when I came, it was with fear and trembling and not with persuasive words of wisdom or great rhetoric. They go, they go that guy who can't string a sentence together very well, who's always stumbling over his words, you listen to him? He doesn't have any flourish. He doesn't have any training rhetorically. Because, as you know, Paul just preached the plain, simple gospel of Jesus Christ crucified and left the power, not up to his words, but up to God's words and the Holy Spirit to transform people's lives. But see, these guys, these false apostles, they were super educated. They were super slick. They knew how to turn a phrase. They were super rhetorically eloquent, and and they had all kinds of flourish about their ability to speak, by which they could capture people's attention according to their own powers of persuasion. They knew how to draw a crowd. They knew how to win people over. They had the biggest churches. More people came to hear them than Paul. And so they'd go, why are you listening to Paul? He's not successful. Look at us. So they'd say, Paul was incompetent. Paul was weak. Paul was cowardly. After all, right, it seems like everywhere Paul went, people hated him. You're listening to the guy who comes into town and preaches and everybody wants to kill him and beat him up and he's always running away. He's a coward. Nobody wants to follow him. He's got his tail tucked all the time. So they'd say his ministry doesn't evidence any real power behind it. Certainly not the blessing of God. Otherwise, why is he always running from the scene? Whereas they, on the other hand, possessed everything that pointed to great success, at least according to the world's standards of success. Their message, 
was not that you're such a horrible sinner that, that Christ had to do what the law, weakened by your sinful flesh, could never possibly do. He had to do it for you. That wasn't their message. Their message was, no, no, no. There's good potential in you. You've got, you just need to be properly inspired and encouraged to be your best and live your best life now. It was that kind of message. So, it pointed to the great potential within them. To do good in their lives. Self-sufficiency. Self-righteousness. Whereas Paul's gospel pointed to human sinfulness. And a, and, a, and a bloody, dead Messiah defeated on a Roman cross, they would say. And then their methods and their manner looked powerful and profound to the world. And, and they made Paul out to be this silly, weak, lame little loser. And they claimed that the outward successfulness of their methods and tactics were, was sure evidence that God was working through them. But not through Paul. He's funny looking. He's not eloquent. He's always getting beat up. He's always running away. So, Paul devotes this entire portion of this second letter now to the Corinthian church, all the way from chapter 2 here over to chapter 7. He, 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 he devotes this whole section to defending his apostolic ministry. Not, not because of his own personal concerns, but because he's, he's very concerned that they don't lose confidence in the true gospel that he preaches. He doesn't want the people in Corinth to be led astray by those false teachers who make themselves out to be successful and impressive compared to Paul. And it's funny, all the way over in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul's referring to those false apostles who make themselves out to be better looking and more eloquent and more powerful and more successful and more impressive. He calls them very um, facetiously, he calls them super apostles. Oh, they're really special apostles. And, and, and he's defending his own ministry against the super apostles here in verses or chapters 2 through 7. And it's this defense of his true apostleship and the validity of his ministry and gospel that I find to be very, very encouraging. And here's why. Because Paul doesn't try to argue that the super apostles are incorrect in contrasting their self-sufficient strength with his weakness. He doesn't go, I'm not weak, I'm not unsuccessful. I don't lack flourish and elegance. He doesn't try to say that. He goes, yeah, no, they're totally right. <laughs> I'm really lame. I really am weak. He readily admits by, by the world's measure, he's weak and he's lame. He's already said that right back in 1 Corinthians. I, I got no eloquence. They're right about that. I got no superiority of speech. I've got no human powers of persuasion. I'm standing up preaching and literally shaking because I'm so scared as, as a redeemed sinner to be bringing the Word of God to people's ears. Much weakness, he said, marked my ministry. Personal weakness. Here in 2 Corinthians, he's going he's to go to great lengths to enumerate for them all of the ways that he's constantly suffering in his ministry. Yep, I'm getting run out of town all the time. I'm getting beat up all the time. I'm getting shipwrecked. I'm getting robbed. I'm getting persecuted. 
And over in chapter 12, he'll say, you know what? I boast in it. I boast in my weakness. Because it's when I'm weak that God's strength is made powerful in me. That's super encouraging all by itself, right? We could just say amen and go home. But nope, not yet. So, he doesn't dispute the super apostles' claim that he's weak. What he says is, here's what they're wrong about. What he says is, they're wrong to measure their success in God's economy. They're wrong to measure their success in God's eyes according to the things that this world considers to be powerful and profound. Paul says, in reality, according to God's standards, it's my weakness in the world's eyes that in fact amounts to success in God's eyes, in God's estimation. And I'll tell you what, on those days when nothing seems to be going right, on those terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days, so the ones that laugh know that book because you raised kids to read that book and the rest of you are gone. What's that about? When Alexander wants to move to Australia, on those days or weeks or months, maybe some of you have experienced, when it can be tempting to think that you're going through all of this weakness and trial and suffering because you've done something wrong and God's punishing you for it, or because God has abandoned you and doesn't care about you, On those days and during those times, it's awfully, awfully encouraging to hear from the Apostle Paul who says that he rejoices on those days in his sufferings. It's always good to know that in God's sovereign goodness, he gives us, like a a present wrapped in a bow, he gives us the weaknesses, the trials, the thorns, the unrelenting sorrows Right? 2 Corinthians 12, 7, a thorn was not in my flesh. It didn't just appear there. A thorn was given to me in my flesh as a gift from a loving Father in order to tune our minds and our hearts into the voice of our Heavenly Father who says, you know what you don't need is pleasant circumstances. You know what you don't need are pain-free days always. You know, what you don't need is the guarantee of of happiness all the time. And sometimes you're going to have thorns and pain in order to learn that what you do need is my grace and that it is sufficient for you. You don't need much more or anything more. 2 Corinthians 12.9, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So here in these very few but very full verses, verses 14 specifically through 17, Paul's pointing us in that same direction. And the key word that he uses is the word triumph. See that word? Triumph. Verse 14, Paul, having been slandered, having been maligned, having been mocked, having been undermined by these super apostles who love to scoff at his weakness and puff themselves up in their pride, says, thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us 
spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance of death to death. To the other, a fragrance of life from life. Who's sufficient for these things? So see, the the super apostles say that Paul embodied weakness and defeat and failure while they epitomized triumph in this world, success in this world, in their own ministries, in their own message, in their own methods, in their own manner. And so Paul... In response, in all of his admitted weakness, says, Thanks be to God that I'm weak. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. What he's saying is, thanks be to God that I'm weak, because here's what that weakness actually means. It means that I am being led by Christ in triumphal procession. The ministry of Christ in and through me does not manifest defeat. It manifests victory and triumph, not of my own, but of His. That's Paul's message. Here's how it does that. What Paul's doing here is he's borrowing from the imagery, which would have been very familiar to anyone living in the Roman world at that time, The imagery of a Roman military triumphal procession, a public display of a Roman army's victory over an enemy army. When a Roman general took his army out again in battle against an enemy army and won a decisive, especially a major victory, then he would take all the survivors of that conquered army and strip them of all their armor and all their weapons and bind them hand and feet and then lead them in this victory procession through the streets as he made his way back to Rome in a public display of their defeat and of Roman conquest, Roman triumph. And while those conquered slaves were being marched through the streets, they were given incense to wave. So that the whole atmosphere became suffused with the aroma of triumph and victory and conquest. This is is a picture that Paul is appropriating here and saying that in all of his own weakness, it is actually triumph that is on display. You see how? Because Paul is not saying that in this analogy of a Roman general leading a triumphant procession, he's not saying that he, that Paul, represents the the victorious general. You get it? Jesus Christ is the conquering general. Paul is the bond slave who is being led now by Jesus in triumphal procession, right? That's what Paul is, right? Romans 1, Galatians 1, Titus 1, Paul, a servant, a doulos in Greek, a bond slave of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God is now being led by his new master, Jesus Christ, in triumphal procession, in a public display, not of something impressive that Paul did, but of the great triumph of Jesus, of his great victory, of his great conquest. 
And how did Jesus achieve ultimate victory? How did Jesus disarm the satanic rulers and authorities, Colossians 2.15, and put them to open shame, triumphing over them? How did Jesus do that? Did He do it the same way a Roman general would? He did not. He did it by what the world would call failure and defeat and weakness. He did it by Himself taking the form of a doulos, a slave, a servant, and suffering unto death on a Roman cross. And so you see, Paul is saying that the very things that the world identifies as sure signs of weakness and defeat and failure are the things that God, in His infinite wisdom, has chosen to work through in order to triumph over sin, over death, over the devil. And Paul's own life of weakness and of what the world would call failure and defeat is simply what one should expect for someone who is walking now in the way of his master, who is the suffering servant. Someone who is being led in triumphal procession through the world by the crucified and risen King of Kings who has conquered death itself. Yeah, I'm weak. That's a good thing. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, I'm suffering. That's a good thing. It means I'm on the right path. It means I'm on the way of the Master. And of course, Jesus, who is the triumphant victor, is a very different kind of victor than the victorious Roman general, right? Who treated those slaves that he led in procession very, very poorly. Not our Lord. Our Lord is the friend of sinners. He conquered our sin. He conquered my stubborn soul. He put me to death and raised me to newness of life. And He is now my friend and not my enemy. While I was His enemy, He died for me. He made peace between me and Him by the blood of His cross. So Paul's point here in, in saying that Jesus is leading him, is leading Paul in triumphal procession, it's not to implicate Jesus with some kind of cruelty like a Roman general. It's simply to identify himself with Jesus who triumphed over Paul's enmity and Paul's sin and who is now leading Paul along the same pathway that leads to glory that is so often in this world paved with the cobblestones of affliction and suffering and sorrow. This is what Paul's saying. This is how we get to glory, people. You walk, the, you walk the path that Jesus walked. It's not an easy path. It's not, a, it's not a wide path. It's narrow. It's hard. And it's paved with trial and suffering. And it leads to. It doesn't consist of. It leads to glory. Is Paul's point and the message of God's Word. And so Paul did identify himself as the bondservant of God in Christ. And he also said, didn't he? Romans chapter 8, later in the chapter, that in Christ we did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but a spirit of adoption as sons. The Master is our Father, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. Listen, provided we suffer with Him in order that we also may be glorified with Him. you got to walk the same road and be willing to suffer with Christ in order to get to the glory that is His presence forever. Can you see your sufferings that way? Can you frame them up in that light? Well, consider the great contrast of Paul's opponents who refused to frame up life this way. The ones that were called super apostles. Their whole goal was success now, glory now, power now, by the world's measure. And so, worldly success and power characterized the way they did things characterize their methods as opposed to Paul's. Paul's method took all the focus off of Paul and put all the limelight on Jesus, not himself. The super apostles embodied the opposite kind of, kind of triumphalism, see, than Paul. His ministry, his life highlighted a, 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 the triumph of Jesus. Theirs put all the focus on themselves and what was impressive about them That's a worldly kind of triumphalism. And it has always been a temptation, even for Christians in the church, to embrace that worldly kind of triumphalism, hasn't it? Way back in the 4th century, the Christian emperor Constantine took the two letters, the Greek letters, ki, x, and rho, like r, put them together in a symbol. They stood for Christ. And he thought, if I emblazon my soldiers' shields and armor and uniforms with the symbol of Christ, then they're going to go out and achieve great triumph and victory in this world. They'll be powerful. It was a kind of Christian triumphalism that was, that was worldly. Because it was seeking a worldly kind of power and success by using Christ to that end. In the Middle Ages, everyone thought that building big, giant, extravagant, opulent cathedrals with huge vaulted ceilings and flying buttresses and columns and pillars on a massive scale was was a, a worldly sign of massive success and power for the church. And the liturgy of the medieval churches was laden with all kinds of very outwardly impressive formalism. In modern times, the church growth movement has convinced most of evangelicalism that mega churches full of thousands of people are the benchmark, are the litmus test signs of successful ministries. Bigger's better. Worldly impressiveness equals triumph. Success is measured by the world's yardstick. But what God values is not bigness in this world, is not opulence of buildings, is not impressiveness or entertainment value, is not numbers of people that all of the impressiveness and the entertainment value can bring through the doors. What God values in this alone is faithful, sacrificial service to His kingdom based on the example of the humble carpenter from Galilee. 
the suffering servant who stooped and washed his disciples' feet, the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. Ian's been leading us through a study of John Owen's magisterial work, The Glory of Christ, on Thursday evenings. And in our study a few weeks ago on Christ's glory in His mediatorial work for us on the cross, Owen makes this awesome comment. I copied it onto page 13 of your bulletins today, just after the sermon notes in the song. Owen says this. I'll let you turn there if you want to follow along. He says, the mediatory work of Christ, which involves both his, his humbling himself and coming down and taking the form of man and taking the form of a servant, being born in the, in the, in the image of humankind, and, and, all, and his obedience and submissiveness to the Father all the way to death on the cross. That mediatory work of Jesus, he says, involves both suffering and glory. And so he calls his church to follow him first through sufferings, then into glory. That was the order, see, that Jesus established. And what the world does is take that order and flip it on its ear. No, we want the glory first. We want the glory now. Jesus didn't come to be served. He came to serve. He came to lay down his life for many. And it was when he was ready to suffer unto death, at the Last Supper, the night before the crucifixion, he said, John 13, 31, Now is the Son of God glorified, and God glorified in Him. Now, when I'm about to be torn to shreds and nailed to a cross, am I glorified. That's encouraging. And Owen says, As his followers, as Jesus' followers, we've got to follow the same order, suffering then glory. The members of the mystical body of Christ must be conformed to their head. In Christ, the sufferings went before glory, and so must it be with us. Now, Paul says the same kind of thing, doesn't he, to Timothy? In the last New Testament letter that he wrote, again, right towards the end of his life, when he had almost finished the brutal course, when he had been poured out like a drink offering, the saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we shall also live with him if we endure through the sufferings, then will we also reign with him. 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. Now, that doesn't mean we invite suffering. It doesn't mean we go up into a, a monastery and, and beat ourselves and afflict ourselves. certainly doesn't mean afflict other people. I'm going to help you get to glory and start treating them terribly. Don't do that. What it means is that as Christians, we should not be surprised when following in the way of the suffering servant causes us to encounter suffering ourselves. Right? Didn't Peter say that? Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. To test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's not strange to suffer if you're walking in the way of the suffering servant. Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, Peter says. That you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. First the suffering, then the glory. Then Owen says, I know you probably all turn back because I keep rambling. But then Owen says, That the opposite expectation, 
The expectation that we should not expect suffering in this world. That we're, we're entitled to glory in this life and comfort and ease and happiness and good things. And so we spend our whole lives in pursuit of earthly glory. That expectation, that pursuit, that's not the way of Christ. It's in fact, Owen says, the deceptive scheme of the devil. Satan and the world both offer immediate glory. But this glory, if you take it now, will be followed by eternal suffering. So which way do you want it? A little bit of suffering now and eternal glory? A little bit of glory now and eternal suffering? That's your choice. Those are the only two options. First, the good things of this life, then the eternal misery. That's the way of this world and its God. And so Paul in response to the scorn of the super-apostles who said that this, his constant suffering was a sure sign of failure and defeat, Paul is responding and saying, yeah, I've suffered. Yeah, I'm weak. Yeah, I'm well acquainted with sorrow and grief, just as my Lord was. And praise be to Him that it all means He's leading me in triumphal procession towards everlasting glory. And then the second part of this picture that Paul is painting in order to frame up his struggles and sufferings in terms of God's truly triumphant purposes instead of the world's definitions of success, the second part of the picture is this idea of fragrance. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. The other, a fragrance from life to life. So again, he's picturing those conquered slaves being led in this Roman triumphal procession, waving incense so that as they march, the air becomes suffused with the aroma of victory and triumph so that that as they approach a, a town or a village or a city, before they even get there, before the citizens can even get out of their houses to come and see the triumphal procession, they can smell it. They can smell triumph in the air. Or you could think, which Paul probably is also, of the burnt offerings of sacrifice in the temple when the throngs would come around to worship God. Even if you couldn't get close enough to the altar to see the bull that was being burned there on the altar as a sacrifice, you could smell it, right? Everyone in Jerusalem, every worshiper knew what that aroma of burning flesh meant. It meant that by that sacrifice, their sins were being covered. This is what Paul's saying. You see it? As he is faithfully following his Lord, the suffering servant, in triumphal procession, as he's counting the cost, as he's bearing up his own cross, as he's sharing in the sufferings of Christ, he is spreading the fragrance of sacrifice. The fragrance, he says, of the knowledge of Christ everywhere he goes. He's causing the world to smell it, to sense the aroma of the gospel, that it was the suffering And the sacrifice of the Son of God that leads to everlasting glory. Paul says, if you look at me and you smell suffering, perfect. Because I can say, you know what the source of that smell is? It's Jesus. 
And he acknowledges some people don't like that smell. For some people, the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ and the gospel is a repugnant aroma. They detest the fragrance of the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified. They're perishing eternally. And the message of the cross is foolishness to them. And they resist it, they reject it, they flee from it, they change it. They say, no, 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 the gospel's, gospel's not about suffering. The gospel's about earthly triumph. Right? Freedom from political oppression, health and wealth and prosperity, whatever it is. Some false gospel, they change it. Because they cannot stand the smell of a suffering servant. So they reject it, they flee from it, in the same way that someone would turn in disgust from the smell of a decomposing body. Ugh, get me away from that. But, to those who are being saved, to those who once were lost but now are found, who once were blind but now like Paul they see, to those who have been given faith in the crucified, risen, triumphant Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the aroma of His death, the aroma of His substitutionary sacrifice, the scent of His humble, self-abasing, self-sacrificial servitude for sinners is as the sweetest perfume. Isn't isn't it? Is not the message that the eternal Son of God emptied Himself, took the form of a servant, became despised, became rejected of men? Is not the message that Jesus was tortured and beaten and nailed to a Roman cross and suffered horrifically unto death such that people turned their eyes from Him? Is that not for us who are being saved by the blood that He shed, by the life that He gave, is the message of that horrendous suffering and sacrifice not the sweetest message that you have ever heard? Because you know what it means. It means He loved you that much. It means He gave you that much. Freely. He willingly and for the joy set before Him endured that much for us who don't deserve anything good from Him. And actually what we do deserve is every bit of what He endured and more for all of eternity. That's what we deserve. But instead He bore it all for us that having died with Him, we might live with Him forever, and that if we endure with Him in this life, in the blink of an eye, in the instant that is your life compared to eternity, if we endure with Him, we will reign with Him in glory forever. And so Paul says to these super apostles who mock and shame Him and point to His suffering as a sure sign of failure and defeat, And they like to highlight their own vain glory as they seek the world's pleasure and the approval of men. Paul says to those super apostles, you know what? You can have your glory. I don't want it. You can have your message. You can have all this world's power and wisdom and success. You can have all the comfort. You can have the pleasure and all the worldly glory that comes with it because in the end, that way that seems so right to you leads to destruction. You can have it. I will never trade the sufferings of my Lord, those that He suffered and those that I suffer with Him, I'll never trade them for your glory. I rejoice to suffer with my Lord. 
Because as I do, that's the true march of triumph. That's the true path to glory. Because the sufferings of this world aren't even worthy to be compared with the glory, right? They're just momentary light afflictions that are paving the way. The only way to true, eternal, unending glory with Jesus. And Paul, look what Paul says. He says, you know what? We're not. Fine, call me weak. Call me if you call. You know what I'm not? I am not a peddler of God's word like those guys. The word peddlers was used of people in the ancient world who were in the, the wine trade, the wine business, buying and selling wine. And so many of them were known for watering down the wine in order to make more profit from it. They compromised its quality, they compromised its integrity, and they put it off as being high quality and authentic, and they sold it for a premium even though it was cheap and watery and weak. Just like the false gospel that the super apostles peddled. And all the promises of self-sufficiency and worldly strength and wisdom and success and, and glory and health and wealth and prosperity that come with it. You can keep your stupid watery knockoff and all of the promises that it can't even deliver on. You can keep it. Because Paul says, I have been promised by Almighty God Himself true glory if in fact I suffer with Christ for a time. I'll gladly march with Jesus in triumphal procession. I'll gladly allow the providential sufferings of God to be added to my life with Jesus if He will take me where He's gone. So, can you see your sorrows and your sufferings and the painfulness of your life, can you see it all in that light, Christians? Not as signs of failure, not as signs of defeat, not as indications that God is against you or punishing you, which in our self-pity we, like we like to say sometimes, oh, I'm suffering so much, God must really be angry. No, 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 no. God hasn't forgotten about you. God hasn't failed to care for you. All of those things are manifestations of that same divine love by which God sent His only begotten Son to suffer for you in order to bring you to glory. There's all, of the, all, of the, all of the pain in your life, it's all signs like the, like the cross itself, right? That used to be the most terrifying thing a person could set their eyes on. An emblem of Roman torture and horror and suffering and anguish and death. And now, for all who are being saved, that's the very emblem of mercy and triumph and life, right? We wear them around our necks. Because they're signs that Jesus, our suffering servant, is leading us now in triumphal procession as we take up our crosses to follow Him. Can you see your sufferings as those kinds of signs? Emblazon that on your shield. Emblazon that on your uniform. Suffering. For I am in the way of the Master. Can you see your sorrows in that light? When, see, when we can't and when we don't see them in that light, that's when, so when we encounter uh, various trials of many kinds and we don't see them in this way, then what comes off of us is the stench of bitterness and discontentment 
and selfishness and pride. And that suffuses the air all around us and the people of the world go, what what does he have that I don't have? I don't need anything from that stinky guy. But when we can see our sufferings in this light and 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 when we can say through all of the fatigue and all the sorrow and all the tears, when we can learn to say with Jeremiah, right, this I call to mind as I'm grinding my teeth in the gravel and Jerusalem's burning. This I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Great is His faithfulness. You know it. The Lord is my portion. When we can tune our souls to the merciful God saying, you don't, you don't need me to pull out the thorns. My grace is enough for you. It's all you need. Because my strength is made perfect in your weakness, so you should be happy about the weakness. When we can, when we can learn to hear God saying that, and when we can say in response, well then Lord, I will boast in my weakness, as Paul does, then the aroma of Christ emanates from us. And the people of the world look at us and see us suffering and and they smell the aroma of Christ and they go, what is that fragrance you're wearing? How do you have so much hope amidst so much pain and sorrow? Then we can be ready to give a defense of the hope that is in us as Peter commands us to do. By spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of God in Christ and the gospel everywhere we go. Telling them that the sweetest news of all is the gospel of him who laid down his life for our everlasting glory. And we can know that all that is painful here is just paving the pathway unto that glory. And that if we endure, we will reign with him forever. There's the hope. I'm a child of the king. This is a momentary light affliction. You want to be where he is, not here. And give a defense of that hope. Amen? We're out of time. Let's pray. And then we're going to sing to our God. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's a double-edged sword. Thank you that it pierces and penetrates even when it's painful and does the work that we need done. Oh, Father, would you retune our hearts? Would you reorient our focus? Would you help us not to see things the way the world sees things? Would you help us to define our reality according to the reality of you and all that you have revealed here? Would you help us to be ready to take up whatever cross? And would you give us, Father, the joy of viewing our God-ordained trials and sufferings through the lens of your suffering servant, our suffering servant, Jesus Christ? who gave up everything for us. And would you help us to be gladly led in triumphal procession with Him? And would you help us to exude from our lives by your grace and strength the very aroma of Christ into the world around us? Father, so be pleased to draw many unto yourself through your church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Page 11. Now I know that when I sent to